You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and Canacurious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. The State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. We are a group of experts in different cannabis spaces with a wide diversity of perspectives and life experiences. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Tuesday, February 22nd, 2022. This is episode number 221. I'm Susan Sorries, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour, author of the children's book, What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cannabis's Favorite Grandma, aka Nanogram. If you're listening to the podcast or watching on the YouTube channel, the show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on Clubhouse. Spark it up with us and over 26,000 State of Cannabis News Hour members if you want to be an audience participant. That's one of the unique things about this show. Not only do we have a panel of expert correspondents, often we have someone in our audience that's intimately involved in the story. Otherwise, please subscribe to support our show. We'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review. Today we're talking about a mom whose autistic son inspired her to get a degree in medical cannabis, a Tallahassee pot doc, and an undercover sting. David Beckham blames the internet for his failure. Could cannabis testing be the cause of the trucker shortage? A breakdown of states that are considering potency caps and many other frosty nuggets. So stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up to the stage. Keep it brief and relevant, or you might get the gong. Kicking off the show today is Nicole West. She is a cannabis business specialist, part-time firefighter and cat herder, and director of operations at LB Atlantis. Nicole is a veteran in the cannabis industry and is always ready to use her experience to guide others. That experience includes taking a felony for a vague and confusing law. During her brief incarceration, she earned the nickname Jail Google from fellow inmates. What's your headline today, Nicole? Uh, good morning, everybody. Happy 2-2-2022 Tuesday. Um, my headline today actually comes out of Tallahassee, Florida, uh, from the uh, Tallahassee Democrat, which, based on uh, the area, probably doesn't have a lot of readers. But uh, this headline is actually in regards to a Tallahassee doctor that they are actually trying to press charges against because they were issuing medical marijuana to lax. So state health officials are asking for an administrative law judge to permanently ban a Tallahassee physician from ordering medical marijuana for patients, suspend his medical license for five years, and impose a $10,000 fine after an investigation that included undercover agents posing as patients. Now, I just want to say that the idea that the state of Florida would have any argument against cannabis being very uh, freely issued as a medical uh, product to 
patients when they have such an epidemic with pain medicines and pain management centers just giving out like oxycodone and Vicodin like candy is insane to me. And this is actually something that I've kind of always wondered uh, where the line was going to be. And I think that we're about to see it because at the end of the day, if we're exposing these doctors for giving out cannabis too easy, we really need to be talking about giving away all of these pharmaceutical drugs too easily. And this is actually kind of crazy because there was a sting operation that they had in order to get these doctors to give um, the recommendations to these patients. So ironically, the only trick or scheme employed in this case was that the uh, petitioner, the agency, by intentionally sending two people in, which they name as BD and OG, to Dr. Dorm to trick him into ordering medical cannabis for BD and OG based on their presentation of unlawful uh, falsehoods concerning their qualifying conditions. Now, the part that really gets me about this is that they uh, brought in documentation that was like, uh, you know, tattered and worn um, from Camp Pendleton stating that they were um, military. And in my mind, and like in all actuality, literally having gone through uh, the service at all, I would feel would be a qualifying condition um, with, you know, PTSD and all of the different ailments that people are coming back with from war. Um, Andrews argued that the Department of Health offered no evidence whatsoever to support the allegation that Dorm failed to determine that the health benefits of marijuana outweighed the risk for OG and BD. Now, if that's the only argument, cannabis wins every time, you know, and I'm very confused as to how they could utilize the fact that they issued to two people who presented false documents stating that they were military, um, that that would actually risk the person from being able to keep their medical license. Apparently in 2017, a law aimed at carrying out constitutional amendment that broadly legalized medical marijuana requires a doctor to undergo a training to be qualified by the state in order and to order cannabis for patients and lays out requirements for physicians before certifying patients are eligible for treatment. The law also makes it a crime for patients to lie to doctors about their conditions to obtain marijuana. So it feels a little bit like entrapment there. In November 2017, Johnson told physicians that he had anxiety, difficulty sleeping, cold sweats, and back pain and leg cramps following a car accident eight years earlier. According to the complaint, Doran injured the system associated with the PTSD as well in BD's patient record and approved him for medical marijuana. During the visit with Dorn five months later, Lanier present presented a handwritten medical record saying that OG had been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder by the military a decade prior. And I think that the idea of questioning whether or not somebody's military documentation to prove that they have PTSD would be valid when it was a little bit torn is being brought into question here. And I mean, real life, if anybody's ever interacted with a military person going through PTSD, the idea of expecting them to keep their documents in immaculate condition is pretty insane too. Um, had Dorn inquired further into OG's purported military experience, it would have been quickly revealed that OG was not prepared to field even the simplest of questions, the health officials argued, which again is insane that they would have to probe into somebody's military experience. Dr. Dorm did not rush OG out of the consultation. Dr. Dorm did not refuse to answer any of the OG's questions. Dr. Dorm did not cut OG off when presented him or, or prevented him from asking or answering any questions, he argued. The state also accused Dorm of failing to conduct a physical examination 
of the agents before deciding whether they were eligible for treatment as required in the 2017 law. But Andrews argued the doctor performed a visual examination of the fake patients that nothing in the law requires a physical hands-on evaluation. So these issues arose during the Office of Medical Marijuana Use Director Chris Ferguson's testimony in the October hearing where Andrews grilled him about the law. Ferguson's office is responsible for implementing the law, but the doctor, the director has no idea whether qualifying physician is required to physically touch a patient, even though the statute explicitly does not require it, Andrews wrote. But the Department of Health said that in its proposed order that Ferguson's office does not regulate medical professionals and it is not responsible for implementing or enforcing the allegations in the complaint against Dorn. It would be inappropriate to rely on Mr. Ferguson's lay opinion regarding the interpretation of these statutes that was written. So I'm super interested to see how this actually pans out. I think it's really unfair that this doctor is being held to this standard when all of the you know pain management abuse that exists in regards to opioids throughout the state of Florida um, are going completely unscathed. So this is something that I'd like to follow and see how it goes. And I'm definitely interested to hear, do any of the doctors in the room have anything to say? Nicole, to your point about, uh, you know, other doctors over-prescribing opioids, um, they can give out samples. That's fucking insane. <clears throat> well, I just think this was a 2017, um, the data that they're pulling from. And the one thing about it is just that, you know, in the state of Florida, there are some really, really good physicians that do take their time. But there are some that don't take their time. So I don't know if it was this targeted. Dr. Dorn is known in Florida to be a little controversial. So it seems like it could have been targeted towards him for some type of personal issue or what have you. Just a thought. Wow. Probably. I didn't think about that, Roz. Thank you. Of course. That's the way it goes, you know? you. It's not just about not getting caught, Jason. It's about not pissing anyone off because they can do whatever they want. But speaking of getting time, we are at time. So up next is Rico Lamite. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is here to encourage other dope dads and the patriarch, patriarch of dad jokes. Find him on TEDx or at one of his Cannavision events, but always find him here every weekday as co-producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour. What's your headline today, Rico? Good morning. Uh, so my headline's, com- my headline's coming out of the Times of London. Beckham cannabis, cannabis firm's first shot goes wide of target. David Beckham back cannabis company Cellular Goods is blaming Facebook and Google's advertising policies for missing quarterly sales targets. Per the article, the company launched its first range of products, five cannabinoid-infused creams, sprays, and tablets, including a 79-pound, which is about $107, uh, face oil at the start of December, just before the arrival of their new CEO, Anna Chokina, uh, uh, who previously had senior roles at L'Oreal, Pepsi Company, and uh, Procter & Gamble. However, the demand has been weaker than expected. Comprehensive business review revealed in initial sales have been below internal forecasts. The company recently suspended sales of its 59-pound, which is about $80, uh, shave, aftershave cream because some batches failed to meet quality specifications but they blamed the missed sales target squarely upon Google, Facebook, and Instagram. Chakina said the tech giant advertising bans on cannabis-derived products severely constrained its ability to promote to consumers. Post-revenue call, Chief Strategy Officer Alexis Abraham abruptly announced resignation from the company board. Poor sales and Abraham's departure led to public shares dropping nearly a third in value. Cellular Goods IPO'd in London a year ago with shares priced at five pounds. Speculative investors jumped in on the opportunity to get in early 
on what they thought to be a futuristic synthetic weed company backed by the legendary soccer player David Beckham. First day of trading shares almost quadrupled in value, but the stock's currently trading at about four pounds per share, well below their initial IPO pricing. But Beckham's still in the money. Unlike others, the former footballer, along with his uh, advisors, acquired shares at one pound apiece pre-IPO, paying 250000 for his 5% stake, now worth just over a million. Cellular continues to lobby both Google and Meta, parent company, uh, to Facebook and Instagram to change their policies, complaining that they've had to overhaul marketing strategies to stay compliant. Um, and this is one, this one's really funny to me uh, for a couple of obvious reasons. Beckham's estimated net worth is about a half a billion dollars. He invested around 300K in this, vent, uh, in this venture, which really ain't a high dollar risk to him. In return, the company banked on publicly stating he's an early investor carrying over it into sales. They were wrong. Keeping it a buck here, the, the products are generically branded overpriced and have zero long-term data on positive or negative effects of synthetic cannabinoids. Uh, I feel them on the social media bands. They're a bitch, but uh, they haven't killed off any of their established competition in the whole plant products lane. Uh, the truth is cellular goods sells unproven products driven by hype, and if it ends up going under, Beckham and the rest of the early investors will still come up huge. A ton of new promising technology processes and ideas will be popping up as everyday investor opportunities as we inch closer to global legalization and acceptance. Whether it's cryptocurrencies, NFTs, or traditional vehicles like stocks and bonds, if you don't know what you're doing, hire a professional to help you make those important investing decisions. This is Rico Lamit, Dope is Dad Internationally, reporting live for the State of Cannabis News Hour. I'd love to hear y'all's thoughts on this one. Um, you get betting long-term on synthetic cannabinoids or not? Are you going to follow David Beckham into the pit? <laughs> what do you guys think? I think that he didn't, like you said, he needs to hire the right people. He didn't hire anyone in the cannabis space because they would have known they were going to have an advertising problem. And boo-hoo, His projections David were Beckham. drastically off, too. If you actually looked at their initial uh, launch from last year, I remember looking at it. Their projections were four or five above uh, X above what even the market could have sustained at that moment. Like they they weren't aware that they're kind of creating uh, this new market when we're talking about like the wellness. As much as you know, cannabis wellness is a thing. Um, it's not in the way of traditional products and a lot of the things that they were trying to roll out, like fucking basically a hundred dollar face creams. Um, right. you know, that of evolution of that market has not quite hit yet. And so the idea that year one, they were going to get the whole fucking face cream market. They were, they were, they were fucking crazy. Yeah. It's unproven. They have no long-term results on anything, but they thought she's going to be paying a hundred dollars a pop for a little bottle of aftershave cream. Fuck out of here, man. <laughs> right. Exactly. We, we've got a uh, uh, fellow correspondent, uh, Elliot Lewis up from the audience. Elliot, did you want to weigh in on Rico's yeah. headline? Yeah, different story, same old story, overpriced product that doesn't sell with a stupid influencer and a bunch of chads that know nothing about the game. Easy to blame IG and Facebook for your failure, but I could have told them if I saw their business model ahead of time, it was a total pile of crap. This is the same story that will keep reoccurring until people learn. So interesting story, uh, great to bring it forward, but I've seen this story in 100,000 different forms. And it's the same old one. And then, you know, whatever. You need an out, so you blame Facebook and IG. We all hate them. But quite frankly, your business model sucks. Boom. All right. Well, well thank you well, so much. Headline well, at time on that. So we're going to go ahead and jump to our next correspondent, uh, Jason Beck, uh, before you're about to interrupt yourself. Longest running retailer in U.S. cannabis history. Also, the industry's <laughs> Jose, what do you have for us today, Jason? Oh, good morning, Nicole. And today, 
my story, I believe it comes with a trigger warning. So just warning ahead, it involves sex. Where a Tennessee woman had sex with nine high school students in exchange for vape pens. That's right. Melissa Blair, 38, was arrested on Tuesday and charged with 18 counts of statutory rape, four counts of human trafficking, and patronizing, or, or excuse me, patronizing prostitution, solicitation of a minor, and forfeiture of personal property. According to the McMinn County Sheriff Joe Guy, there are at least nine confirmed male victims with incidents occurring from spring 2020 to late 2021 among students at McCain Central High School in the town of Inglewood. That's right, Inglewood, but it's not California. Parents told WTVC that Blair reached out to her victims, all of whom were between the ages of 14 and 17, and offered them items such as vape pens in exchange for sex. Inglewood, about 65 miles north of Chattanooga, boasts a population of just over 1,500 residents, and police began investigating Blair after the school district received an anonymous letter, officials said. She is not a teacher or employee of the district, but was involved in the school's booster club. I bet she was involved in the booster club. She had a child in the school system who had transferred. Blair is banned from school property and school activities. And they say, we are devastated at, at this point. A mother of one of the victims who was asked to remain anonymous told the outlet, I cannot in words describe what it feels like to go through what we're going through right now. It is every emotion that you can imagine and none of them are happy. People focus mostly on the perpetrator, she continued. They don't realize how this devastates a family, how the families are at home, and we don't know what to do next. I have no idea how to go forward with this. Blair is is out on a $100,000 bond she made uh, on Tuesday night, and she's scheduled for an arraignment on February 28th. And parents uh, to talk, and they're encouraging parents to talk to their kids to speak up because it's not right. It's just really not right. Not right at all, Inglewood resident Christy Teagle said, told the station. I would be livid if this happened to my kids, she added. Well, I'll tell you what, paying for sex for vape pens, I mean, I think that's a new new commodity. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Before we comment, I just want to make sure that if you were triggered by Jason's story, there is help available. You can call the National Sexual Assault Hotline. It's 1-800-656-4673. I did notice that nowhere in this headline did it mention that they were cannabis vape pens. So I'm even more curious now. Um, Were these just regular tobacco vape pens? And then at, at the next bit of the conversation, who was paying with them they probably had fentanyl in them this is my hometown like this is literally where i grew up where i was raised to believe i was allergic to cannabis so i definitely don't think that they're probably cannabis vape pens um sadly i do not know melissa blair but (laughs) this is a very small town less than two thousand people inglewood has even less than that uh so it's just very not surprising this is this is southeast tennessee in a nutshell who was paying who, though, Jason? Were the, were, the, 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 the kids were paying for sex with vape pens to the teacher. They were and getting- so I'm, I'm willing to bet that these are cannabis vape pens because if she is a teacher, she could have easily gone into a head shop and bought a tobacco vape. Or it was just a interaction play or ploy. 
or maybe she, may, yeah, or maybe or was, she did fun things with the vapes. Who knows? I don't know. We got to talk to one of the oh kids. Oh my god! Maybe it was like an underground, no. like a secondary market for vape pens, decentralized. I feel like if they were THC, they would have put that in there. You know what right, I mean? Right. Yeah. It, it, no way. They it's, it's, like a, it's like a new kink, vape pen kink. Back in the day, it was cigars. Yeah. I mean, I, I have seen on an Instagram video back in the day when Vet Pens first came out, a girl that was bro, kidding it. Bro, 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 bro. <laughs> Let's keep smoking the news. Oh, my God. All just right. saying. Just saying. <laughs> Up next, she's the founder of Panoptic Strategies, a staunch supporter of safe banking and a self-described feisty redheaded conservative with Mayflower Roots. Never too scared to spar with cannabis-loving libs across the aisle. Coming to the stage is Gretchen Gailey. Good afternoon, Rico. Uh, my headline is coming from uh, The American Prospect. Uh, Michelle Child sentenced a man to 12 years for selling eight ounces of weed. Um, if you're unfamiliar, Michelle Childs is one of uh, President Biden's um, possible choices for a Supreme Court nomination. Uh, here, here the story says, in 2009... Willie Roy Goodwin went before Richland County Circuit Court Judge uh, J. Michelle Childs to plead guilty. He didn't realize he didn't really have much of a choice after inviting an undercover cop into his house repeatedly and selling him marijuana, all caught on hidden camera. He thought a plea deal looked like his best bet. So plead he did to five charges of possession with intent to distribute marijuana and one charge of failure to stop for a law enforcement vehicle. He was prepared for more than a slap on the wrist, even though he was a nonviolent offender. It was his third marijuana arrest, which in South Carolina brought with it a mandatory minimum sentence of five years. The length wasn't the only concern. By the letter of South Carolina law, Goodwin would have to be housed with mainly violent offenders because third strike weed distribution charges were not eligible for parole at the time. But there was also reason to be hopeful. The sum total of all five weed sales was only 8.73 ounces, a trifling amount to justify putting someone away for half a decade. It was the sort of situation where a canny judge understanding the situation could have found some sort of workaround. Quote, five years was what they were saying in the beginning. I'm thinking it ain't nothing but some weed. Uh, even my lawyers was telling everybody weed was about to be legalized. It wasn't anything serious. Judge Childs didn't see it that way. After hearing the prosecution's argument, she sentenced Goodwin to 12 years for his half a pound of cumulative marijuana sales. Because it was a non parolable third strike offense. That meant that Goodwin was compelled to serve a minimum of 85% of that sentence, locked up with violent offenders, 10 plus years of hard time, regardless of good behavior. I have more time than people in there who killed somebody. It was crazy. Today, Judge Childs, now sitting on the federal bench, is a top candidate to receive a Supreme Court nomination with powerful backers like House Democratic Whip Representative James Clyburn and Senator Lindsey Graham. But the outside sentence for a relatively small nonviolent drug offense stands out on Child's record. According to court documents obtained and reviewed by the prospect, Child's harsh sentence came as a surprise. The Richland County Public Defender's Office quickly filed a motion to reconsider the sentence, detailing improper arguments, unfounded speculation, and incorrect legal assertions by the prosecution. The assistant solicitor said that if the cumulative weight of the marijuana that the defendant was charged with selling on different occasions was added up, it would be the equivalent of trafficking marijuana and that the court should consider this. This is simply incorrect. A defendant must be in possession of at least 10 pounds of marijuana to be found guilty of trafficking. The prosecution, too, had, without evidence, assumed that the defendant had been dealing drugs in larger quantities 
and made that a core component of the case, asking Judge Childs to consider the infraction tantamount to traffic. The story goes on and on a bit more about uh, the case, but what it clearly states is that a child's record uh, is distinctly at odds with the newfound commitment to criminal justice reform and smart on crime policies, one that has remained popular on a surprisingly bipartisan basis. Even as a nascent crime panic has been stoked in recent months, Vice President Kamala Harris even wrote a book while Attorney General of California called Smart on Crime, disavowing punitive sentencing and echoing a strategy put into effect in red states like Kansas and Texas. I don't see this as a great thing. Um, it does definitely seem that, uh, uh, Judge Childs uh, lacked some uh, compassion and perhaps uh, some understanding of her own laws uh, by the way that this man was sentenced. Um, I don't think this bodes well for the future of cannabis uh, going through the Supreme Court. We shall see if she does become uh, the presumptive nominee from Joseph Biden. Scratching for State of Cannabis News Hour. I wonder how hard it would be to find a candidate for the Supreme Court that didn't have some kind of bad record when it comes to the war on drugs. Well, I think you're going to find any judge who prosecuted these kind of cases or ruled on them, they're going to follow the law. And if the law at the time says, you know, put people in jail for cannabis, that's what they would do. I think what they find so questionable about this particular case is that clearly she did not follow the rule of law. This man did not have 10 pounds of marijuana. He did not deserve to go away for 12 years. Um, So I I don't know how she came up with that decision, frankly. That would be the concerning point to me is that she she did not follow the statute at all and kind of took this uh, into her own hands to put this guy away. It is concerning for sure. And um, it looks like this story might have some legs. Yeah, I would be curious to actually read some of the court documents to see what what might be left out of the story, mm-hmm. um, because the federal sentencing guidelines, you know, Gretchen, are pretty clear. Right. Um, yeah, so there's a pretty solid lane that she should have stayed in. So there might be something more that the, the publication didn't include. Let's dig into it. Well, thank you so much for that headline, Gretchen. Um, we're actually going to hop to uh, one of our next correspondents. We're going to jump over a couple, get to Chris Eggers today, uh, cannabis security consultant and the founder of CC Security Solutions, former reader of your Miranda, turned passer of the reefer. What do you have for us today, Chris? Good morning. My article uh, comes out of Midland, Michigan, exploring uncharted territory of cannabis in the community. Uh, Midland officials address stigma, concerns, and benefits of marijuana. A couple interesting uh, uh, lines in here I want to get to. As cities around Michigan consider the possibility of allowing marijuana dispensaries to operate in their communities, Midland remains closed on marijuana businesses. Local officials recently considered the stigma of cannabis use, the lack of extensive research and the substances on the substance and what they were observing in surrounding areas that have dispensaries. Now, in February of 2019, the Midland City Council established an ordinance that prohibited commercial cannabis use. Personal use by individuals ages 21 and over is legal, though, and not affected by the ordinance. Now, Officer Brennan Warren, Community Relations Officer with the Midland Police Department, said that there's a lot of reluctance and scrutiny when it comes to marijuana because... It is newly legalized substance and in some states, uh, sorry, in some states, especially compared to alcohol, which has been nationally legalized for decades. Warren says four years is a very short period of time when it comes to something as influential as marijuana. Warren explained, though, that to his knowledge, law enforcement officers across Michigan have not seen an increase directly related to the presence of marijuana dispensaries. Law enforcement agencies also have not seen an uptick in uh, illicit trade in the cannabis industry, which they originally thought. In addition, marijuana businesses have the opportunity to support community, both financially and throughout uh, customer interactions, Warren said. 
Um, there's a lot of uh, uncertainty with new things. I think a lot of people were on edge just because it was so new in the way that marijuana and cannabis have been viewed in a negative light. Nobody knew what to expect, said Warren. Uh, Warren also said that in Midland is in a unique situation as Midland police adjust to the legal possessions of marijuana and seek to educate the public about its effort. One big concern Warren voiced was having dispensaries in the community increase ease of accessibility while there is so much still unknown about cannabis and how it affects the body. Now, this is where uh, it gets interesting. Steve Scott uh, is a founder and owner of Kraft Hemp Company in downtown Midland. He explained that there are a few medical studies around marijuana. His wife attended medical school at the University of Michigan uh, from 2004 to 2008, and is uh, an ear surgeon explained that physicians do not learn in medical school about the endocannabinoid system or interactions with uh, cannabinoids. And Scott said that a lot of people want to know about cannabis and CBD. They think that physicians are going to be well-versed in this topic, but that they're not. And then his wife later says that the only way to overdose from marijuana, even though Warren said that they oftentimes see marijuana overdoses, is to have large amounts of marijuana dropped on you. And then Warren also said in this article that as we look close, not looking too far down the road, I think that we're going to go see the benefits of marijuana. So I like this article because it touches on, it sounds like, you know, the police department there is embracing studies on on marijuana. And I appreciate that they had a quote from somebody who was actually in the industry whose wife went to medical school. Um, I thought it was really interesting. Curious what any of our uh, doctors have to say about this article. My name is Chris Akers. Thank you for allowing me to share on the State of Cannabis News Hour. I think the more education we can get out there from a, a top-down perspective, as long as it's good information and education, I'm all for it. Absolutely. All right. Well, the half-hour point, so I'm going to do a relight. You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. The thoughts and opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers, not those of any other speaker, State of Cannabis, or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and State of Cannabis and its speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory, or any other authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationships. The sponsorship of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expressions of any of the opinions whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any of its speakers. Viewer discretion advised. If you missed the beginning of the show, make sure to catch the replay on Clubhouse or find us a few hours after the show anywhere you get your podcasts or on our YouTube channel. And if you like the content, please subscribe and leave us a killer review. Let's keep smoking the news. All right. So up next, she's the co-founder of the International Cannabis Bar Association, Badass Canna Mom, and scientists worldwide have traveled near and far to study the silky smoothness of her one-of-a-kind abilities. Truly amazing. Coming <laughs> next, it's Laura DeCaro. What you got for us today, Silky Smooth? Here we go, my, my co-partner in Silk. Um, I have something out of Massachusetts today. Um, Massachusetts candidates for governor are lukewarm on, quote, cannabis primary. It's a, an article by Colin Young out of the State House News Service. It starts off, hoping to launch a new era of pot politics with candidates as comfortable and willing to drop by a dispensary on the campaign trail as they are a diner or a coffee shop. Two former State House regulars are inviting the candidates for governor to visit their Drakeit marijuana shop. It's an LGBTQ-owned facility called Treehouse Craft Cannabis. Quote, it gives us an opportunity to help them understand this emerging market, co-founder and CEO Tara Turnbull is quoted as saying. 
But the author points out that the cannabis businesses added more than 10,000 jobs in Massachusetts in the last two years, generated more than twice as much tax revenue than the state was counting on in the budget last year, and contributed millions of dollars for the host communities to use. So the business owners and advocates are more vocal than ever about the problems that they see in the state's cannabis sector. Um, the overly aggressive host community agreements, high tax rates, license types that seem economically unviable, and limited progress toward the state's cannabis laws, explicit social equity mandate are listed as those predominant list, uh, problems. Um, political candidates in Massachusetts have apparently not typically been keen, according to this author, uh, on cannabis, a drug that remains illegal at the federal level, as they point out, but was legalized by voters in mass in 2016. The Senate chair of the Joint Committee on Cannabis Policy and a, a Democratic candidate for governor, Senator uh, Sonia Chang-Diaz, is a, expected to visit the dispensary. Attorney General Mara Haley, a Democrat who opposed and worked against the 2016 ballot question, is not expected to visit. And Republican candidate Jeff Deal and Chris Doherty didn't uh, adequately respond. Um, apparently, Jeff Deal's office feels that law enforcement needs a mechanism to deal with impaired driving. And that was his response to the invitation. So it's an interesting dialogue driven by this LGBT-owned dispensary, um, trying to open up channels with government to see how they can make a path forward for an extremely valuable and viable business segment uh, in Massachusetts. My name is Laura DeCaro, I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. That comment about having to deal with drug driving, it, yeah. it's so ridiculous. I mean, come on, you're going to go in the dispensary and just because you're around it, you might have a hard time driving home. It's so crazy. It reminds me uh, of uh, when Jeff Jones, a long time ago, Jeff Jones of Oaksterdam University took a big Rubbermaid container into this cop education class and pulled out some cannabis plants. And he said that you could hear so many of them go, <gasps> like, oh, my God, it's a plant. <laughs> I know. It's, it's as though, you know, he doesn't. He doesn't understand that just, you know, visiting the dispensary, seeing what actually takes place there might actually help to educate him and inform his policy moving forward. I think it's a great litmus test, uh, Laura. And I think, you know, if, if localities and states, if, if everybody around the country is doing that, we could really see where people stand. And it's a, just a great just device to kind of see where people are, you know, like, you know, walk. You got the walk or you just talk. Right, right. Exactly. All right. Well, up next, we have Ms. Roz McCarthy. Roz is Minorities for Medical Marijuana founder and CEO. What do you have for us today, Roz? Hey, good morning, everybody. Thanks, Nicole. Thanks for having me. Um, we're going to be talking about uh, state legal cannabis states considering potency caps. With more and more states opening up political and legal space for cannabis, a backlash is manifesting in the idea of THC limits, whether of bud, extracts, or edible Voices from the industry and activist community see this as a throwback to the days of reefer madness. Um, gosh, man, it, it feels like a new day is dawning for cannabis in the U.S. As some 20 states have now embraced legalization from an adult use perspective, and many more have adopted medical marijuana programs. But resistance remains. The fear of THC and the associated high, quote unquote, has been deeply ingrained by generations of propaganda. Several states are now considering potency caps for cannabis products, 
or have already instated such maximums. Opponents see the hand of federal pressure behind such moves and argue that they may be counterproductive even from the standpoint of protecting public health. So when we start out, we have a potency cap pending in Illinois. So there is a bill, State Rep. Mark Batinick, um, out of Plainfield, said he introduced the bill, HB 4709, at the urging of the Illinois State Medical Society after members cited a supposedly skyrocketing, quote-unquote, number of cannabis-related calls received by the Illinois Poison Center. So let's talk about skyrocketing. So in 2019, there were 487 such calls, and then that went to 743 for 2020. And in 2021, there was 855 phone calls were related to the consumption of THC-infused edibles, the Poison Center reported. Batnick's bill would cap the amount of THC in cannabis flour at 10% and impose a 15% maximum for concentrates and infused products. Pamela Althoff, director of the Cannabis Business Association of Illinois, rejected the proposal as a pointless burden on the burgeoning industry. Quote, it's almost impossible practically to be able to do this, she told the Sun-Times. She said that authorities should have instead be focused on alternative psychoactive cannabinoids such as Delta-8 and THCO that escape regulation altogether due to a loophole in the law. The normal also spoke out against the measure. If passed, this bill would significantly limit access to stronger forms of cannabis with the most detrimental impacts falling on those who rely on marijuana for medical properties, Normal said in his most recent policy update. So again, we're going back to medical. And the fight against having caps, in my opinion, is being able to look at this plant from a medical and everyone has to be dosed and and be able to have um, cannabis as medicine based upon their tolerance level. So we go back down here and the article goes on. Mississippi is also looking at establishing caps. Any progress is good news in Mississippi, which has some of the harshest cannabis laws in the country. Republican Governor Tate Reeves signed the implementing legislation February 2nd. However, he did so with a statement that included a stern lecture to adult use legalization advocates. He said there is no doubt that there are individuals in our state who who could do significantly better if they had access to medically prescribed doses of cannabis. There are also who... There are also those who really want a recreational marijuana program that can lead to more people smoking and less people working. Oh, my gosh. With all the societal and family ills that 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 brings and and in seeming so in his prohibitionist sentiment, the language of the law includes a THC limit of 30 percent for flour, 60 percent for concentrates. Products with over 30 percent THC must be labeled extremely potent. Again, we're seeing the conversation in Colorado. Colorado, one of the first states to legalize adult-use cannabis by by voters in 2012, last year also passed legislation to rein in high-THC cannabis products, although the new law stopped short of an actually potency cap. That was was Bill HB 21-1317, calls for establishment of scientific review council to examine the effects of high-potency cannabis products on mental health and the developing brain. So I will end this article. I, I, I really implore you guys to read more. But for the second time, I will end it. And I will say cap or not to cap. And literally, we are having an industry that we are starting to put like these, I, I would say, caps on, on being able to produce when we don't even have a scientific background 
um, to even say if those um, different higher levels of concentrations are, are, are having an effect or not. So I'm Roz McCarthy, signing off for, um, from the State of Cannabis News Hour. I would love for you guys to weigh in on this because I think this is something that's going to proliferate throughout the country. Thank you. We're, we're at time on this headline, but I want to make sure we get Elliot and Mary and Priscilla a chance to weigh in. Yeah, let me just say real quick, caps are stupid. All it does is encourage the, the, the black market to continue to fur, uh, flourish and spoiler alert, Half the testing you see out there is totally faked and lies. Anyway, all it's going to do is create people to test lower. The reverse that they're doing now is test higher. And then it's stupid anyway. Some people need a dab. Some people need some flour, whatever. But it's going to create really, really, really bad outcomes. Every time the government gets involved with cannabis, it creates bad outcomes. Guys will just be lying about the testing to have 9.9% versus what they're doing now and claiming 38%. None of that stuff is real. Half the testing out there is already fake. This will just encourage that and create a sub-market that can grow products that are actually good and not boof. Dumbest bill ever. You know, I don't think that uh, people really understand how medical cannabis works. I think, uh, you know, it, people think that you uh, are, are just using it to get high and not recognizing that people with serious pain, serious histories of trauma are going to need these higher concentrations of THC. And it's not just a matter of smoking more or uh, weed or using more vape because the THC percentages are really what needs to be modified. So uh, we, need, we need to defend these uh, higher potency products. Thank you. The caps are absolutely ridiculous. Do we cap anything in alcohol, in liquor? The, the, the caps on cannabis is ridiculous, and we all need to fight against that. No cap cannabis. There's too much vitamin C in my oranges. Crazy. Let's keep smoking the news. She's a fifth-generation Californio and award-winning journalist with a multicultural background, a writer, brand consultant, event promoter, content ninja, and freedom-fighting farmer's friend. Up next the international man of truth-telling himself, Eric Hislereta. What you got for us, my man? Hey, Rico. Thank you for that intro. Hey, everybody. Great to be here today. My headline is from Vice, and it's Cops Burn 66 Million Worth of a Tribe's Cannabis to, air quotes, send a message. So it's especially a bummer to see that reefer madness is alive and well in the motherland of cannabis indica, indica, of course, meaning India and not having anything to do with in the couch. Uh, an historic ceremony outside the small village of Kodur transfixed India over the weekend. The police in the southern Indian state of Andhra Pradesh had amassed a year's worth of seized cannabis, over 200,000 kilos from 1,300 seizures. Together, they said it was worth over a whopping 66 million. They burned it all. On Saturday, the red carpet event was filled with thick plumes of smoke as the first of its kind stash went up in flames. The images went viral. It was a, spectac a spectacle, admitted Gautam Sawang, the director general of police of Andhra Pradesh, who lit one of the piles himself. From, far from the spectacle are tribal farmers who live in a remote district hundreds of miles away from where the seizures and the burning ceremony took place. Many belong to a particularly vulnerable tribal group, a government classification for communities that depend on farming or gathering for survival and have little to no access to development. Over the years, journalists investigating the cannabis trade in the region have reported how the survival of indigenous tribes was closely linked to cannabis cultivation. Police interventions were sporadic, uh, so much so that it seemed allowing the tribes to cultivate cannabis was a part of the police strategy, reports said. But something shifted recently, India's war on cannabis. We want to send across a message about the kind of resolve we have taken to curb this menace 
menace plaguing the country, Sawang told Vice World News. Generally, things happen uh, quietly, but this was a record of sorts. We wanted people to sit up and take notice. It may be dubious, but we wanted to send the message across. Now running three months, the operation followed years of reports that labeled Andhra Pradesh as the cannabis capital of India and aims to put an end to it. Over 7,500 acres, 90% of the identified cannabis farms along the state borders have been destroyed so far, according to Sawang. Uh, the dramatic optics from last weekend raise eyebrows among those researching medical cannabis use in India. In a land where cannabis practically evolved for millions of years, how can, how can burning make any difference, said cannabis researcher Ayushman Narayan, who was a part of India's first medical cannabis clinic. For advocates of medical cannabis, the enigmatic plant is not the enemy, and cracking down on its cultivation wastes a valuable but misunderstood resource. India has a nascent cannabis legalization movement, and many advocates like Narayan believe that regulation and more research on its use will do more good than prohibitions and burning ceremonies. But there are exceptions too. In 2018, the North Indian state of Uttarakhand became the first to allow cannabis farming for a variety of low THC uh, varietals. Now states such as Madhya Pradesh, Manipur, and Himachal Pradesh are considering as well. Cannabis is one of humanity's oldest cultivated crops and has been extensively documented to be so. A robust demand for it still exists and will continue to re remain so, said Narayan. The more authorities suppress it, the more they waste resources and time. And I couldn't agree more with that. I'm Eric for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Thank you for having me up. I'm willing to bet that one of the reasons that they burned all this weed is because it was a bunch of outdoor booth. Because if it had any real value to it, they would have just <laughs> sold it on the trap market. Yeah, they don't they don't grow the Franken weed indoor in uh, India, so that's what they got. And these farmers really depend on it. So I say let them grow it. Is it 66 million cop math, or is that real math? No, I think that's you know t well, it's 200 kilos. So they're they're uh, Indian weed is very, you know, much, it's cents on the gram. So, um, I mean, you could do the math, but they're saying, they're, they probably inflated it. They're cops. Uh, we've got Chris um, Filter on papers up from the audience. Chris, did you want to weigh in on Eric's headline? I greet everybody. Thanks for bringing me up, gentle ladies, gentlemen. It's an honor. Uh, I would like to, not on this topic, it's about the 6G rule, which is coming up in German. Ouch. All right. Well, uh, <laughs> thank you for that. Thank you for that headline, Eric. Uh, yeah, and the the cop math and two hundred. I was just thinking about that. You said it was how many kilos? Uh, two hundred k. So, and what was the dollar amount? Uh, they said sixty six million, and I forget. I used to know the grandma in India, but it's super obviously it's cents. I don't so know let's see, divided by two. Oh, yeah, no, that's way off. Um, what do you so, got? Uh, that would be basically $33 a gram. Well, that's close to what the U.S. government does, and they value everything $25 a gram, so. <sighs> yeah, that's fucking insane. All right, well, uh, that sucks, and I hope that uh, we can figure out a way to stop this kind of shit from continuing to happen, because there's a lot of really innocent farmers that lives are at stake for this kind of thing. So, uh, and up next, we have Mr. Brandon Dorsky. Brandon Dorsky is the CEO at Fruit Slabs, a cannabis and intellectual property attorney, as well as my favorite bearded lawyer, stuck somewhere between vibes and judicial system. Brandon, what do you have for us today? 
Thanks for having me this morning. Today, my headline comes from Marijuana Moment. It's Wells Fargo analyst says federal marijuana testing mandate to blame for trucker shortages and rising costs. Top Wells Fargo analysts claim the main reason behind worker shortages in transportation is due to federal marijuana criminalization and resulting drug testing mandates. Chris Harvey, the head of equity strategy at Wells Fargo Securities, brought up these challenges of cannabis testing in the trucking industry and said, quote, it's really about drug testing. We've legalized marijuana in some states, but obviously not all, but some. And what you have as a trucker is you have a federal mandate for drug testing. Federal transportation law stipulates that safety-sensitive jobs like trucking require drug testing policies. And because THC metabolites can be detectable in a person's system for weeks after they've consumed, the recruitment of new drivers is incredibly problematic and becoming increasingly difficult for industries that require them. Harvey said, quote, because of the mandate for truckers, we're excluding a significant portion of that trucker industry. The New York Post reported last year that more than 72,000 truck drivers were taken off the roads since January 2020 due to positive THC tests. This problem is not limited to the trucking industry. A congressman has also noticed the problem is affecting the USPS with people getting disqualified because of their prior marijuana use or use while they are employed and then failing a drug test. And the congressman has proposed legalizing marijuana so that postal workers don't lose their jobs for using it and the U.S. Postal Service can maintain its delivery obligations on time. The director of national intelligence has also said in a recent memo that employers should be a little bit less strict on their cannabis policies and has suggested that security clearance applications should not be immediately rejected over past marijuana use and that you could use discretion when it comes to evaluating it or parties that have cannabis investments in their stock portfolios. And on top of that, the FBI updated its policies so you are not automatically disqualified if you admit to having used marijuana within one year of a po- of applying for a position. However, they did further clarify that and say you are ineligible if you've used cannabis more than 24 times after turning 18. Collectively, what this article is suggesting is that a lot of industries that require testing and THC testing are really feeling the heat and feeling a loss of potential candidates as a result of their drug testing policies. So hopefully we'll see some action, not just uh, in the trucker industry, but in many other industries so that things will cease being subject to repetitive delay and that people can consume their cannabis without concern for losing their job. This is Brandon Dorsky reporting for the State of Cannabis. Hadn't they had trucker shortage uh, that we had, like where they were trying to have high school people, uh, high school drive? So it sounds like this is an issue, period. I think I think they're trying to use cannabis to mask up a much more uh, much more serious problem, which is actually leading to to shortages not just in the trucker workforce but all workforces, and that's the vaccine mandates. We've got Benjamin Marks up from the audi- audience. Benjamin, did you want to weigh in on Brandon's headline? I did briefly, just to say that last week it was interesting to me that relating to the supply chain shortage, uh, one noted um, uh, testing lab. It has a complete shortage of urinalysis cups, and you literally, in the state of Maryland, could not go to, for example, a Quest lab and do a urinalysis because LabCorp has all the urinalysis cups. And when I asked about it, just to understand why, he said, yeah, well, on the bidding for cups that are out there in the supply chain, LabCorp won and Quest did not. So, you know, to the point that truck drivers cannot 
get drug tested or have to drug test, maybe there's also a shortage of, of cups at the various testing facilities, depending on what brand of testing facility you go to. I think, I think they're, I think they're, like Jason said, they're using cannabis as a scapegoat for missing their revenue targets, period. You can see more and more companies starting to blame that. Um, the fact of the matter is we're in a, a down period for the market overall, so expect to see more people blaming shit on weed. Yeah, that's why we need more bills like um, those introduced by Cork over the last couple of years. He just reintroduced one to protect California employees. Another AB 2188 just came out um, in the last couple of weeks. So I think you know, you'll know you see efforts like that uh, the more people try to blame cannabis. I think we need Millie, Vill- Millie Vanilli to come back and do a song called Blame It on the Weed. <laughs> but they don't really sing their songs, do they? Yeah, somebody <laughs> else would be singing it. <laughs> Didn't one of them die from, like, suicide? Let's keep keep smoking the news. I did want to give a correction on my math from the last equation for that India weed. It actually would be $330 a gram. I missed a decimal. That's a lot of, yeah. Let's keep going. (laughs) So she's the founder and CEO of It's Weed Related LLC, a U.S. Army veteran, cannabis advocate and principal officer at Acre 41 Enterprises main focus is social equity and community outreach. Up next, I'm very proud to introduce one of our newest correspondents, Zaza Simone Brown. What you got for us today, Zaza? My story is coming out of Albuquerque, New Mexico, and the headline reads, Water Rights Debate Creating Tension with Cannabis Businesses in New Mexico. Hispanic farmers and rural residents in New Mexico are concerned that legislation would allow small cannabis producers to significantly boost their plant count let their plant counts and lacks a provision to ensure that the producers have valid water rights. So they have a house committee that is scheduled to consider this bill coming out today. And the push comes from waning hours of the legislation session that ends on midday tomorrow. So as we know, New Mexico is one of those states that has Um, shortages in water because it's so hot there. And so the supporters of the legislation have described the water rights requirements as red tape that is keeping micro businesses from entering the recreational cannabis business, the cannabis industry. However, critics worry that without the requirements, the legal use of water could go unchecked as the industry takes off in New Mexico. They point to problems elsewhere, including California, where water theft by illegal marijuana growers has helped to suck dry local acquirers, leaving legitimate users without water. So Paula Garcia is the head of the New Mexico Aquia Association, and she said it's a matter of equity. Native Americans and senior water rights holders in New Mexico are from historically underserved and marginalized communities, and they stand to be put at a greater risk if having these if having their rights impaired. New Mexico is now in a long era term a ratification where we can more carefully stewardship of our water limits resources of cultural integrity. By removing the water protections in rural entities such as mutual domestics and aquiers, we who are entrusted with managing water at the local level, they bear the burden of enforcement and it would put the water at risk. 
So over the last five months, state water officials have reviewed about 40 cannabis businesses proposals in the verification for their water rights. And less than 15 percent of those proposals had valid water rights configured correctly for the intended use. So under the legislation, a license could be revoked if the grower uses more to, more water then they have legal right to use. And the state is really concerned because the more water that is being used towards these plants to grow, they're fearing that the people who legally have rights to use the water won't have enough water to do whatever they need to do. So the farmers and others have suggested that New Mexico collect at least two years of data on the water used by the industry before the legislatures can propose any changes to the water protection requirements within the Cannabis Act. And so I'm just asking for my other correspondents to say what they feel about um, the risk of people who need the water having the water supply if it's going towards more plant count for cannabis to be grown in the state. Thank you. This is a really important issue. I mean, having grown up in New Mexico part-time, you know, water has always been a huge, huge issue for us there. And um, a lot of it, I mean, it's a first-in-time state. So, you know, if, if you're a legacy user uh, and you've been diverting water from an acequia for, for years, you're going to have more rights to it. But it's a really complicated, very highly um, politicized and charged issue. And then, of course, we let companies like Intel come in and build these ginormous chip processing plants that burn through whatever water we might have under the table. Um, and so it's it's actually been a really big issue, water wars in New Mexico, and it's only going to get worse. We've got um, Jay Cannabis up from the audience who is in New Mexico. Did you want to weigh in on Jaja's headline? Yeah, thank you so much for reporting on this. Uh, it's really important. I was actually in a meeting a few days ago about Ezequiel water rights in my area, and it's definitely an issue since there's a drought out here. But I think if you are using it responsibly, uh, the state is requiring drip system. Drip, drip system does save so much water. And coming from a background of agriculture, uh, I think if if you're a good neighbor, I think people will, will look out. Because if you're in a community like mine, people really depend on the wells. And if like my business, for example, were taking away from someone's livelihood, then then we would we would stop using as much water. That's just a good neighbor. But thank you so much for reporting on this. Thank you so much. We've reached the top of the hour. And so we are going to end the show. It was a really good one. If you missed any of it, make sure you catch the replay on Clubhouse or find us a few hours after the show anywhere you get your podcasts or on our YouTube channel. And if you like the content, please subscribe and leave a review. A big thank you to all of the correspondents that comb through all the headlines each day to bring us just what we need to know. A big thank you to Nicole and Rico for co-producing the show and to our pinup girl, Liz Rogan. Thank you, audience, for being our eyes and ears when there's news in your city, county, state, or country. Your addition to our show makes the State of Cannabis News Hour news you can trust. You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. 
Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific time for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Say adios, Rico. Adios.